Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. For the fourth talk in our series, History of Ideas, David looks at Alexis de Tocqueville's great book about American democracy, written nearly 200 years ago. But when you hear where he thought it was heading, some of it feels as though it could have been written yesterday. Talking Politics, History of Ideas is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading literary magazine. After each episode, continue your exploration of the history of ideas in their unrivaled archive of essays and reviews, films and podcasts, and find out more about how a subscription to the LRB can be an indispensable home learning and student resource by heading over to their website, lrb.me forward slash ideas. That's lrb.me forward slash ideas ideas. In these talks so far, I haven't said much about democracy. I touched on it briefly with Wollstonecraft. But you might think, isn't that the central idea of modern politics? How can you have a series about modern politics that doesn't begin by talking about democracy? Well, I'm going to talk about democracy today. But it isn't the central idea of modern politics. Democracy is an ancient idea. In its ancient form, it means something quite specific, or at least it means a couple of quite specific things. For many ancients, it meant rule by the poor, because democracy empowers the majority in any political society. And it was always understood that in any political society, most people would be poor. But democracy also meant direct involvement by the body of the citizens, not everyone by any means, but all those people who qualified as citizens, all men, all of some standing, not slaves. It qualified the body of the citizens to participate in the state, but it had at its heart an idea of equality. In the ancient world, particularly in ancient Athens, one of the founding principles of democracy was what's sometimes called selection by lot. That is a randomness that anyone could do the job of decision-making in the state. People would take it in turns and they would be chosen by chance. It could be you, could be me, could be anyone, because it's not a special job. There is an idea that equality underpins the exercise of power. That is an ancient idea. It has always been, for many people, quite an attractive idea. But in the modern world, it's also been, for many more people, until relatively recently, a very frightening idea. It seems dangerous. It seems unstable, not least, because rule by the poor does not tend to appeal to the rich who would otherwise have the power. The poor, the ignorant, the young, if they are the majority in any political society, then democracy for the rich, the educated and the old is a dangerous idea. When the people who wrote down and expressed ideas about politics have always tended to come from that other group, the rich, the educated, the old, which meant in modern politics, particularly the period I've been talking about, there was a deep suspicion of democracy. It was the default for almost anyone who expressed a view about politics, that democracy was a dangerous idea. The founding idea of modern politics is not democracy. It's representation. It's Hobbes's idea 
the idea that in a modern state, power is delegated. Power is handed over to a smaller group of people who exercise it on behalf of the larger group. And the larger group acquiesce in that. They authorize it. They legitimate it. But they also live under it and they live with the consequences of it. Hobbes was not a Democrat. Some people have tried to argue that he was, but he really wasn't. It's true that there is, in Hobbes's writing, actually, particularly in books other than Leviathan, an idea of a sovereign people that somehow has the residue of power, the ultimate power in the state. But really, Hobbes is clear. He has a certain contempt for that ancient idea of democracy, not least because he has a contempt for ancient ideas of politics. Democrats, with their belief that somehow, if you get many people involved in politics, you will get better outcomes for Hobbes, are deluded. But more than that, Hobbes was kind of indifferent about democracy. That's the whole point of Hobbes's argument about politics. It doesn't matter that much. That great ancient divide between the many and the few, monarchy and democracy, that argument for Hobbes is not the central argument. Maybe you'll be ruled by a king. Maybe you'll be ruled by a parliament acting in the name of the people. Maybe you'll be ruled by the people as a whole. Maybe the people will find a way to gather together and take a decision. It doesn't matter nearly so much as whether or not you have a decision maker at all. The fundamental divide is decision or no decision, not who makes the decision. That indifference is what drives Hobbes's idea of representation. What matters is that you should be represented, not how or by whom. And then it turns out that on the idea of representation, even the Hobbesian idea of representation, though not through Hobbes himself, you can build a notion of democracy, what we now call representative democracy, because you can expand that idea to allow the people who are represented to have more say over who they are represented by and to have more say over whether they think they are being well represented or not. Hobbes pairing politics down to representation does allow it to open up again in a democratic direction, but it is very much modern democracy, not ancient democracy. Modern democracy starts with representation. It's a bit of a mistake when we call it representative democracy, which implies that the representation qualifies the foundational idea, which is democracy. Ours are democratic forms of representation. Democracy qualifies the foundational idea, which is representation. That process of opening politics up to a democratic form of representation was beginning through the end of the 18th and the early 19th century, but it only really took off later in the 19th century, particularly in Europe. The English state, the British state, that had changed a lot since Hobbes's times, that had been through the 1688 revolution that turned it into a kind of liberal state that Constant could admire and that Wollstonecraft hated, that state was not a democracy. The French Revolution was a kind of experiment in some forms of democracy, though founded on ideas usually of representation, but by no means all the revolutionaries were Democrats, and many of them shared that deep modern suspicion of that dangerous ancient idea. But even if it was an experiment in democracy, it failed, because it did not produce a democratic France. It failed in the ways that Constant reflected on in his lecture in 1819, the wheel turned all the way. But there was, by the early 19th century, 
a clear experiment in democracy that almost everyone who thought about it recognised had the potential, at least, to be something new. And that was the experiment that was taking place in the United States of America, following the American Revolution and the emancipation of the American state from British rule, and the foundation of a state on a new constitution with a new way of doing politics. The constitution of the new American state was not itself democratic. It was animated by that fear of ancient democracy that was so common among the kind of people who drafted constitutions at the end of the 18th century. It was, in its own terms, the terms of the people who drafted it, a republic. And by a republic, they meant a modern state, a modern representative state, so not exactly an ancient republic. But they also meant a state that was organised around a set of ideas and limits that would limit the power of majorities to run through the state, to cut through the state, and to empower the poor, the ignorant, and the young. The founders of the American Republic were as frightened of that form of democracy as anyone, not least because they were also founders of a state that still contained the institution of slavery, and at the bottom of their fear of democracy was a deeper fear of what might happen if literally all human beings were treated equal. So the American Constitution was not really a democratic constitution, though it was the kind of constitution on which democratic ideas could be built. It did contain this novel idea that people like Constant, among others, were drawn to, the separation of powers, that the people could be represented in different ways by different branches of government that would then check and balance each other. But America was not just its constitution, and the American Revolution did not just produce a constitutional revolution. It was a social revolution too. And American society was much more democratic than its constitution. And many people who observed America thought that the real experiment in democracy was not just in its politics, but in its way of life. And in the sense that they had that America might be starting to adopt some of those ancient principles that were founded on equality and the idea that people were more or less as good as each other and as capable as each other of taking important decisions, non-hierarchical, fundamentally non-aristocratic, treating people, not all people, but many people, the same. Someone who saw America in those terms was a young French aristocrat called Alexis de Tocqueville, who came from a family that had narrowly survived the revolution. It had nearly got them, but it didn't. The wheel had turned, it had turned all the way round. It hadn't quite taken them all down with it. Living in France, he wanted to see America for himself because he understood, as a young man, that it was the great political and social experiment and that it was the kind of experiment that was not possible in Europe, that America had certain advantages when it came to experimenting with the idea of democracy, that however attached you might be to either ancient or modern democracy in Europe, you just couldn't replicate those conditions. A country like France was really constrained in how it could experiment with democracy because it had two things that America lacked, two forms of constraint. It had history. It had centuries and centuries of history and hierarchy and structure that meant even a revolution, and Tocqueville wrote about this too, even a revolution like the French Revolution, radical and wild, an attempt to build a new world. 
was hugely constrained by centuries of history that shaped the path it could take. The French Revolution was, as modern social scientists might say, deeply path-dependent because France had the pull, the toe of its history all the way through its politics. And then Europe had another problem too. It was too crowded with states. It's much harder to experiment with a new kind of politics, a new kind of social order, if your state, your nation, your society is jostling up against rivals and neighbours. If you undertake an experiment in politics, you want to be reasonably confident that if something goes wrong, you'll be allowed to continue with it. But Tocqueville knew from his own life experiences and what had happened just before his own life, from the French Revolution on, that mistakes in European politics didn't leave those states' neighbours saying, you get on with it. It left those states vulnerable to take over, to conquest, to collapse. In Europe, people didn't watch what their neighbours were doing and shrug their shoulders. States watched what their neighbours were doing and saw an opportunity to expand. So America had two great advantages. It didn't have the deep toe of history, and it had the expanse of its geography. Of course, it is true that America was not new. It was the new world for Europeans, but it was only new if you ignore the people who were already living there, Native Americans. And for Native Americans, the great experiment in American democracy was a disaster. It was actually terminal. It was the worst thing that could ever have happened. But for Europeans, America was the place where a new world could be experimented with. American history was British history, and the American Revolution only makes sense in the terms of British history. But the break with Britain and the break with the British crown did allow America's revolutionaries to behave as though they were making their own history, and that they didn't have centuries of feudalism and hierarchy and aristocracy to contend with, even in their post-revolutionary world. And Americans also had the advantage that they were an ocean away from Europe. And if something went wrong, though they might fight wars, and they did fight wars, and the Americans fought a war against the British, and the British did burn Washington in 1812, still, Americans could make mistakes and get away with them. That, for Tocqueville, was the great advantage of America. You could experiment, you could get it wrong, and you could still survive. Europeans couldn't do that. The French definitely couldn't do that. The Americans could. So Tocqueville thought he would see it for himself. And while still young, he went there in 1831 with a friend to look around with a plan to write a book about America. The original plan was to write a book about the American prison system, its penal system, because Tocqueville thought it would be interesting to compare European and American attitudes to crime and punishment. But he soon thought there was a much bigger story to be told. And that story was the story of democracy in America. And he told it in two books, one published in 1835, one published in 1840, two volumes of Democracy in America, perhaps the greatest book ever written about either democracy or America. What did he find when he got there? The first thing he found was that American life was pretty chaotic, and his first impressions were of the chaos, the noise, the bustle, the boosterism, people exaggerating, people telling tales, the lack of hierarchy, the seeming lack of order. It looked to Tocqueville 
like a society that had indeed done away with deference and aristocracy, but not really replaced it with anything. So it looked like a society that was slightly out of control. He found it quite alarming. But as he travelled around, and as he saw more of America, including what you might call back then, different heartland from now, but the heartland of 1830s America, he came to a different conclusion. The initial impression was of this surface volatility. American society and American politics looked like it was out of control. But the more he saw of America, the more he thought that actually underneath the surface, behind all the noise, there was quite a lot of stability. Indeed, there was even quite a lot of dignity. In parts, America was quite a conformist society, quite staid, quite settled. Its idea of equality, which in some dimensions produced this volatility, this sense that everyone's as good as everyone else. You listen to me. No, you don't tell me what to do. I'm allowed to talk. That America, that idea of equality, also produced in many of its social relationships a much more stable setup, both egalitarian but also communitarian. People believed in the society that they were living in. They believed in its values. They shared many of those values. And as a result, the surface volatility concealed an underlying stability. It was an unusual journey and an unusual set of conclusions to reach most travellers to America in this period from Europe experienced America the other way round. To take another example, a bit later than Tocqueville's journey, another young European, another youngish, ambitious European, Charles Dickens, took a trip to America to see it for himself. Dickens' first impression of America was, like Tocqueville, of the exuberance, of the liveliness, but he loved it. He thought it was an expression of what he had hoped to find in America, a kind of democratic instinct. Dickens was on the side of the poor. He was on the side of the oppressed. He thought Americans had given people who were suppressed in Europe a chance to find their voice. But the more he travelled around, the more suspicious he became. And he started to think that under the shiny surface of American life, under the glittery noise, there was something more tawdry, more corrupt, more hypocritical. He was increasingly struck by and horrified by the original sin of American life, which is slavery but also all the ways in which Americans dress up their basic corruption in the language of democracy. Dickens thought America looked good on the surface, but possibly was rotten underneath. Tocqueville saw it the other way around. He thought America looked terrible on the surface, but possibly was stable and secure underneath. And that underlying stability and security was for Tocqueville manifested as a kind of faith in democracy. Americans, because of their belief in certain principles of equality and because they were living a life in which equality was real at some level, they believed in it and they believed in it as the way of the future. Democracy for Americans, Tocqueville thought, had a providential quality. There was a kind of religion of democracy in America that the ceremonies of democratic life the festivals that took place to mark the Declaration of Independence were, as well as being very exuberant, also solemn, almost religious occasions. And Americans were a religious people. They believed in providence because their religion, Protestant on the whole, taught them about providence, taught them to have faith in the future. 
They were not Catholics. Most of them were not Catholics. They were not from a world of priests and superstition and hierarchy. Their religion taught them an egalitarianism and taught them that they were saved. But that then created a puzzle. And one of the things that makes Tocqueville such an interesting writer about politics is that he can find a puzzle in almost any solution to a question and he can find a solution in almost any puzzle. If the solution to the puzzle of American life was that providence underpinned the volatility, faith in the future underpinned the experiments in the present, then the paradox was this is not really an experiment. How can it be an experiment if no one believes it can go wrong? How can it be an experiment if the mistakes don't matter because the future will take care of itself? Religious providence is not experimental in those terms. Religious providence is an expression of faith. Tocqueville told a story that he thought captured this, this paradoxical side of American life. The worst thing that happened to him on his nine-month journey around America was he took a steamboat, a river steamboat in the south, and it hit a rock or a mud bank, and it started to sink. And as it started to sink, he noticed that this big, impressive vessel was actually really fragile and shoddily built, and it started to fall apart. And he thought he was going to drown, and he discovered that many people did drown taking steamboats on the American waterways. But he survived, and he was terrified, but he survived. And after he survived, he asked the manufacturers, the owners of these steamboats, why their boats were so shoddily built. Why didn't they actually make them better? Didn't they make them more seaworthy? And he was told, we live in a country where things are changing so fast and everything's getting better so quickly. It's not worth our while improving our steamboats because a better one will be along soon. We can hang on with these and have faith in the future and a better steamboat will come anyway. To which Tocqueville said, but if we travel in your steamboats, there's a reasonable prospect that we will drown. And faith in the future, in those terms, he thought, was very, very dangerous. To use a much more contemporary term, it had built into it a kind of moral hazard. The hazard being that people did not feel, ultimately, that they were necessarily responsible for their mistakes because they lived in a society that was so bustling, so dynamic, where things were changing so fast that even their mistakes would soon be washed away by progress. But if you were unlucky enough to get caught up in one of their mistakes, you would be washed away, literally. And what was true of individuals and of steamboat builders might be true of the whole society. America was so privileged. It was so cut off in its way from the rest of the world. It had a whole continent to explore. It had a whole continent of Native Americans to shunt westward, ultimately to their destruction, that it could get away with its mistakes. Nothing too terrible could happen in America because it was hard to imagine anything that would result in the collapse of the American state or American society. So this was an experiment in which it was too easy to make mistakes because the mistakes didn't matter enough. Tocqueville said more fires get started in America and more fires get put out too. Not literal fires, but fires by analogy. In American democracy, things keep going wrong, but things keep changing fast enough that it doesn't matter so much. That, for Tocqueville, was the glory of American democracy 
and the risk. The risk being that people did not take their mistakes seriously enough. And it's very hard to read the history of American democracy from then to now and not think that he had a point. But another way that Tocqueville tried to frame the central paradox of American life was that it did have these two sides, surface volatility and underlying stability. He wrote, very interestingly, comically almost, about his experience of seeing American elections in action, election time, the most volatile time in American politics, where the noise almost becomes unbearable. Everybody has an opinion. Every newspaper is shrieking that this candidate or that candidate is the end of the world or the salvation of the nation. As Tocqueville said, when an election is coming, it feels like the river of American democracy is about to burst its banks and everyone's going to get swept away. There's a kind of hysteria around American elections. And then the election happens, and either this candidate or that candidate wins. And Tocqueville says, and the river subsides, and it returns to its course, and life goes on. The election seems like it's going to change everything, and usually it changes almost nothing. That's one of the paradoxes of American democracy. When it works well, the volatility and the stability complement each other. The volatility injects life into this potentially stable, somewhat conformist society. The stability and the conformism prevent the volatile politics from spiralling out of control. But the danger of American life is that the two sides of its politics and its society, the two sides of its democracy, could come apart. Either the volatility or the stability might take over. One way to illustrate this is through Tocqueville's catchphrase, if he had a catchphrase the small number of words that are probably most often associated with his writing. That phrase is the tyranny of the majority, the thing that Tocqueville warned was the great risk of democracy, because democracy, as well as being egalitarian politics, is majoritarian politics, because the many decide. That thing that people always feared about democracy, what if the many, what if the majority in any given society are not qualified to decide? What if they are the wrong sort of people? If that group, the majority, have a kind of untrammeled power, it's dangerous, Tocqueville thought. And he thought it was dangerous because any form of tyranny is dangerous, but he particularly thought majoritarian tyranny had a distinctive character. But as always with Tocqueville, there were two sides, there were two ways it could go. Majoritarian tyranny does not just have one face. And the two volumes of Democracy in America give a different picture of what it would be like to live in a society where the majority have run out of control. In volume one, it's the volatile side of politics. So when he thinks about the tyranny of the majority there, and volume one is broadly the more optimistic book, the first one, the one that was published in 1835, it presents both more of the lively side of American democracy, but it's also in many ways more accommodating of that side of American democracy. But it does picture what it would look like if that volatility ran out of control. Majority tyranny in those terms, Tocqueville says, looks like a riot, literally like a riot. The examples that he gives of the tyranny of the majority in volume one of Democracy in America are race riots, 
lynchings, mob rule? What if the mob finally becomes unconstrained? What if it takes out its anger as the majority on minorities, racial minorities, outsiders, foreigners? And what if it can't be stopped because this is a democracy and the majority say, there are more of us than you? And politics gets reduced to what it can be reduced to in its worst forms, Hobbes's ultimate fear, just a conflict of force and will. Tocqueville thought American democracy contained within itself that risk. It was always there. The word we would probably use for that side of American political life is populism. The tyranny of the majority manifested through both people and their leaders, crowds, mobs, and the people who speak for crowds and mobs, manifesting their suspicion, their anger, their frustration, their feeling that as the majority, as the racial majority, as the majority the poor, they should be doing better if this really was a democracy. How can it call itself a democracy and the people who belong to the majority feel like they're the losers? That instinct, Tocqueville thinks, is potentially tyrannical and it has the possibility of taking a grip of American life. But in volume two, he offers a different kind of fear about the tyranny of the majority. There, it's the other side, the passive side. There is also a risk that the majority doesn't become wild or out of control, that the majority becomes stale and conformist, that to live in a society where the majority is thought to know best might be to live in a society where culture becomes narrow and simplistic because most people don't have enough taste, where the ways by which people live become unimaginative, where there is suspicion of your neighbours because they're not really like you. There isn't an attempt to riot and to tear down all the frustrating walls that stop the majority from getting its way, but there's a kind of tut-tutting disapproval of people who stand out, of the eccentrics, of the nonconformists. And Tocqueville thought that risk was ever-present in American democracy too, that the majority would actually not run out of control, but stifle imagination, that the experimental side of American life, its great attraction for Tocqueville as a European, would itself be stifled by majority tyranny, and the tyranny would be over the free use of imagination. And the experiment would gradually and slowly fail because it ceased to be an experiment and actually became a society that was as set in its ways as any of the European societies it tried to escape. These two sides of American life were ever-present, and Tocqueville, I think, was broadly agnostic as to which one was the bigger danger. There was always the danger that those two distortions of the democratic ideal, populism and conformity, would actually feed off each other because there is, Tocqueville noted, and we would probably still note to this day, in populism, this slightly anomalous feature that it is quite conformist because it is the tyranny of the majority, that there is in even the wildest forms of populism a certain tut-tutting, prissy disapproval of eccentricity and difference. It's not just riots and mob rule. Tocqueville did become increasingly pessimistic. 
He was, as a young man, enthused by America. And when he wrote Democracy in America, a lot of that enthusiasm comes through. And he's also simply fascinated by it. But by the end of volume two, he is sounding a note of warning that this way of doing politics, this basic attachment to equality and providential faith in the democratic future, risks becoming passive and sheep-like and conformist. And a passive and sheep-like and conformist people are prey to actual tyrants, to people who exploit their passivity and offer them a comfortable life and actually channel their tut-tutting disapproval for purposes that in the end undermine democracy. There was that risk in democratic life too. Part of the reason that Tocqueville became more and more pessimistic was that his own political experiences got bleaker and bleaker. So he lived through the great revolution of his life, which happened in France, but it was not the French Revolution, not that one we've been talking about. It was the next round of European revolutionary politics in 1848, the year of the liberal, or perhaps at a stretch even, the democratic revolutions in Europe that swept the continent. Most, but not all countries were caught up in them. For a while, it felt as though the wheel was turning. The people at the top would come down. The people nearer the bottom would come up. Many people channeled many different kinds of hopes into those revolutions. For liberals like Tocqueville, there was at least the hope of a kind of liberal transformation. For more radical thinkers, including the thinkers I'm going to talk about next time, Marx and Engels, there was the possibility of a total transformation. And yet, it wasn't that the wheel turned all the way round. The wheel never really turned at all. The 1848 revolutions fizzled out. For Tocqueville, some of that fizzling out was good. Tocqueville was not in favour of a complete or even a halfway turn of the wheel. But he also experienced the disappointment of a liberal who sees even his modest hopes snuffed out by the complexity of politics, by the draw, the toe of history, the things that he always feared about European politics, that it couldn't reform itself because it was basically ensnared in its own past. And Tocqueville saw this for himself as a politician. He actually did the politics. He became briefly the foreign minister of France. In the unstable regimes that followed the 1848 revolution, he tried to introduce some kind of Tocquevillian understanding, paradoxical, puzzling, of how politics could go better, and he didn't succeed. And he wrote about it afterwards as a deeply disillusioning experience. He had the kind of experience of French politics that Dickens had of American politics. The surface excitement, the initial enthusiasm, the feeling that maybe this is a fresh start, this was the thing that he'd been looking for, and then gradually, as time goes on, thinking that under the surface it is rotten and the old ways still hold, and that the people who are involved are hypocrites, and that no one is telling the truth, and that the fools will win, and that the best people will be driven out. And that's what happened in Tocqueville's mind. France did not save itself. And America, at the same time, he observed from across the ocean, was on a very dangerous path. Tocqueville died in 1859. So he didn't get to see the great calamity of American democracy 
the ultimate calamity, the one calamity that Hobbes insisted every political system should try and avoid at all costs, a civil war. And the American Civil War was, to that point, the worst civil war in human history, simply in terms of its cost in human life. It made the English Civil War look like a lightweight event. Tocqueville didn't see it, but by the time he died in 1859, it was pretty clear to him that America was on a dangerous path. The two sides of American life were coming apart, and they were coming apart over the original sin of American democracy, which was slavery, but also coming apart over the deep racial tensions and divisions that ran all the way through American life. American politics was becoming in the run-up to what would be, though Tocqueville didn't know it, its terrible civil war, both more volatile and more complacent. There was more anger, there was more noise, there was more surface activity, but at the same time, there was less actual attempts to change the system, to rescue it, to experiment with something new. The Civil War was not an experiment in democracy. The Civil War was a civil war, and no one, least of all Tocqueville, thought that a civil war was a way to experiment with the future. American democracy was heading for catastrophe, and Tocqueville sensed that. He sensed that that story that he told that started relatively positively became a little bit darker in Volume 2 of Democracy in America was going to become a lot darker still, and that American society had fundamental problems almost intractable problems at its root, at its foundation, that had to be addressed. And American democracy, with its weird mix of surface noise and underlying stability, but also passivity, was not able to address them through its own constitutional order. And yet, Tocqueville did not think, I don't think he ever believed, that democracy was not the wave of the future. He had some of that sense of democracy as the providential system of government, the one that God had ordained for human beings, because its underlying principle was the one, he thought, that was bound to win out in the end, even in Europe, the one that is almost impossible ultimately to resist. The idea that human beings are, at some level, basically equal. What was distinctive for Tocqueville about the modern world was what he called the equality of conditions. That modernity is different from what came before because modernity gradually and progressively strips away traditional hierarchies. It replaces them with new hierarchies, one of which is the hierarchy that puts the majority on top, whether wild or conformist. But the old hierarchies get stripped away. And that direction of travel for individual societies, but also for human society, was at some level inexorable. And at some point, it would sweep through Europe. 1848 was not it, but it would come. And it might eventually sweep through the world. One of the prophetic things that Tocqueville says in Democracy in America is that he can foresee a longer term future one beyond the ups and downs of American life, let alone the ups and downs of American elections, one beyond even the volatile politics 
of European state squabbling, who's up, who's down, between Britain and France, or France and what would become Germany, or Germany and what would become Italy, or Italy and what was once Spain. That very volatile politics too, the politics exploited by Napoleon, that wasn't the wave of the future either. At some point, he could imagine a future where the world was ultimately divided into two forms of politics. The one that was represented by the United States of America, and he said the one that was represented by Russia, the Russia of his time, an autocratic society, a theocratic society, a much more top-down society, but a powerful one, one with the geographical expanse to be unconstrained by European rivalries hemmed in by these little borders. America and Russia might confront each other as rival visions of how the world might be organised in the modern age. And during the Cold War, that line in Tocqueville's Democracy in America was one of the reasons that people rediscovered the book. It's come in and out of fashion. Sometimes people think it's prophetic. Sometimes people think it's a French aristocrat's gullible take on a society he didn't understand. But when he said that the world might be ultimately a contest between American democracy and Russian something else, if you read that in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or even the 80s, the 1950s, 60s, 70s or 80s, you might think that Tocqueville had seen deep into the future and then the Russian rival to American democracy collapsed and it turned out that as an experiment it was a complete failure. And for a while it looked as though American democracy was providence and it was the future and that the wave had swept through the world and maybe we were at the end of history. And now we live in a world where the rivalry has been renewed but it's not really between America and Russia. It's between America and China. And that that rivalry still fits some of the patterns that Tocqueville described because both those systems claim to embody the fundamental principle of modern politics, which is not democracy. It is representation and it is equality. The Chinese state represents the Chinese people. The American state represents the American people. Both states claim to represent their peoples in the name of something that both states understand as a basic principle of equality. And yet these are not the same ways of doing politics at all. They have different forms of control. They have different understandings of how to experiment. It is an open question at the start of the 21st century whether the Chinese state or the American state are better at experimenting with different ways of meeting the challenges that they face. It's also an open question which one faces the greater moral hazards because as you become more secure at that level of state, there is always a danger of thinking that your experiments that go wrong don't matter until you make the mistake that matters for everyone. And now in 2020, I have no idea, I don't think anyone has any idea which way that story is going to go. There are many people who believe that we are living through the transition from the American century to the Chinese century, from one understanding of equality to another understanding of equality, from one understanding of state power to another understanding of state power. 
and from democracy, potentially, to something else. I don't think anyone can know whether that's really happening. But what does seem clear is that Tocqueville was right when he said that democracy remains the great experiment. But if it really is an experiment, it can't just be providential. There has always to be the risk that it does ultimately go wrong. The details of where you can find Democracy in America and many other reading suggestions, please look out for our show notes, available with your download of this podcast. Next time, David discusses what Marx and Engels really had to say in the Communist Manifesto.